This is Lee Pettis reporting with the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service. In our latest Meet the Candidate podcast, Rio Grande Guardian editor Steve Taylor interviews Dr. Lora Cisneros, MD of Brownsville. Dr. Cisneros is running for the open Congressional District 34 seat in the Democratic Party primary. This seat is open because incumbent U.S. Rep. Philemon Vela announced he was retiring at the next election. This is part one of a two-part series. This is Steve Taylor for the Rear Grande Guardian. We are in Brownsville, Texas today for the latest in our Meet the Candidates series. And I'm so pleased today to be meeting up with Dr. Laura Cisneros, who is running in the Democratic primary for Congressional District 34. Now, Congressional District 34 has been changed somewhat. Laura is going to tell us a little bit about the district and where it stretches to, etc. But but also, first of all, she's going to tell us a little bit about herself and why she's running for Congress, what, what, what are the issues are that she is campaigning on. So, uh, Laura, first of all, um, it's great to meet you. I've heard so much about you. Looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Taylor. It's a pleasure to meet you as well. Uh, my name is Dr. Laura Cisneros, and I am a native of Brownsville. I was born here. Uh, I'm a board-certified oncologist, and um, I've been in the area and found out that there are so many things that could certainly be improved. I did not like the way things um, remained over years, at least in the last 10, 15 years. There are uh, a lot of uh, issues, and we'll get to that a little bit later, that could certainly benefit from a very good leader, someone who's going to represent us in Washington, D.C., so that we can improve the quality of life of everyone. My district which is everyone's district in uh, CD34, uh, goes from Brownsville to uh, Edinburgh, some parts of Edinburgh, all the way through Kingsville, which is Kleeberg. So there are five counties, Cameron, Hidalgo, Willacy, Kennedy, and Clayburg. Does that tell us that perhaps uh, Congressional District 34 now is taking in more of uh, Hidalgo County or less than last time? It has taken more. There's been a growth spurt uh, of people coming into Hidalgo and subsequently with uh, Hidalgo having many more residents, citizens, voters, they have redistricted the area so that with those five counties, we have about 700 plus thousand uh, population. Why? Because they try to maintain a certain amount of voters and population. And because of the boom in Hidalgo County, the state uh, elections board was uh, mandated or forced to redistrict the area. Yes. Do you happen to know what the sort of the percentage population is between Cameron and Hidalgo in District 34? We have over 200,000 voters in general, and Hidalgo has over 400,000. So by far, it is one of the larger counties when it comes to voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 200,000 in Cameron. Plus. Plus. 245, 250 mm-hmm. in Cameron. And 400. Right. And of that 400 or so, 400,000 in Hidalgo, 
what sort of percent, how, how many of those would be in 34? Well, those are all in 34. All in 34. So, all in 34. So, so I didn't really appreciate this. So District 34, you could make the case, is, you could argue it's anchored in Hidalgo County, not Cameron. Yes, and that was my surprise as well. I have the data, but I have the data which, where every county has these amount, these voters, these voters, these voters, and if you were to rate it as far as who's one, who's two, three, you'd say Hidalgo, Cameron, Willacy, and then Clayburg, and then Kennedy. In, yeah, obviously. In, in number of, yeah. of voters. But this is fascinating for me because traditionally, you know, when District 34 was created, you know, 10 years ago when Texas grew, uh-huh. two or three new seats, 34 was one of those. It was anchored in Cameron County, but now it could be argued it's, at, it's anchored in Hidalgo. So the Cameron doesn't really have an, uh, a congressional seat that, you know, that it can claim its own. Well, Cameron is very vital uh, in, in, in the fact that we have been very long-standing. You know, we go back to Fort Brown and, you know, we are historic. We are historic to the most. According to your economic development leaders, the second most historic city in Texas. Correct, correct. And so I think every county has its it has its benefits, its pros. We've got the Port of Brownsville. We've got the, the Gladys Porter Sioux. We have, you know, many things. But so does Hidalgo. And so does Kingsville, etc. But you're correct, Mr. Taylor. You're correct that Hidalgo has, population-wise, voter-wise, they are stronger than Cameron is. Mm, that's interesting. Okay, so moving on to yourself. Have you run for elective office before? Never uh, in a political elected position. Um, Previously, uh, I have had uh, a lot of experience in so-called politics when I lived in the Midwest. And for years, I did uh, everything that entails running a campaign, uh, meeting with Mayor Daley, we wanted a school for the Hispanic neighborhood because the students had to travel miles, get on two, three buses to get to a high school. And we said, we have the population and we should have our own high school. And myself and a group of other interested activists, organizers, as they like to call them, uh, started that campaign and started that movement that we wanted to school, which we succeeded and it's now called Benito Juarez and it's in the Pilsen community. Um, And again, and that was one of the many things we did. I was instrumental in starting also the Fiesta del Sol, La Fiesta del Sol, which is the largest outdoor festival for the United States. We in Brazil have our own Fiesta del Sol, but this one which was also based in Pilsen, which is a Hispanic neighborhood in Chicago, was started many years ago. And again, it was, now it's very large. It's over four days and sometimes they have mechanical games and, and all kinds of vendors and things. And again, I have been there, so I have the experience. And uh, 
just doing things, getting parking, um, getting, excuse me, um, playgrounds when we had empty play, play lots there. We are picking up trash for the community that, uh, that needed to be done not once a week, but two and three times a week. So we were very proactive, Mr. Taylor, very, very proactive. And I do have that experience. And as a doctor of over 30 years, I've sat in many committees. I've participated in many uh, activities, charitable, charitable committees, missionary work. So I think my experience and my leadership is vast. I, I'm older. Therefore, I have a lot more experience. I'm curious what to ask. You say you are a Brownsville native. So how did you end up in Chicago? For a short period of time, uh, I, w I was born here, raised here, so to speak. And then um, at some point, my parents relocated. But then I came back um, and I always considered Brownsville home. It's my roots. I mean, it's, I knew that eventually I'd be back because all of my family's here. I, I think we were the only ones that were basically out of the area. And I've got relatives going back four or five generations, six generations that were in Southern Texas and Northern Mexico because people forget that years ago, you didn't really have a, a uh, defined border, so to speak. People would come and go. And that's why it's so important that people in upper United States don't, re don't relate to what it means to live in the border. They don't relate. I live in Nebraska. I live in, you know, Canada or whatever. But they don't relate that here we're one big family. Why? Because the people who live in Brownsville, half of their family can be in Matamoros. And people in Matamoros, half of their relatives are here. And so many Americans even spend time there, and then they come back. Just two days ago, I participated in, a, in an event that the fire department held, and they collected hundreds of toys. And the fire department from Matamoros came, and they took the, the toys because January the 6th, is a very, very, I think it's even more important than Christmas. So all of Latin America celebrates the three, the three kings, uh, El Dia de los Reyes Magos, you know, when, when the three kings brought gifts to Jesus. And so children usually receive gifts on that day, more so than on Christmas in Latin American countries. What we have is a very, very, very close bond with, with Matamoros uh, because we, we, we're, we're, really, we're really one family and we see that in Charro days. In Charro days, traditionally we have a parade and the parade that starts in Brownsville ends in, crosses the bridge and they go all the way the International Parade, and it goes to Matamoros. So again, uh, the people in the area are very well aware that we have a very amicable relationship. It should be that way. It should not be adversarial. 
it should be friendly and it leads to cooperation and benefit to everyone. So if elected to Congress, will, we, will you be taking that message along with all the other issues you're, you're, you're gonna, you're, you, that you really care about? Could that be one of the uh, things that you want to tell uh, your, your colleagues in Congress about the unique aspects of, of living on this US-Mexico border? Absolutely, because I think one of the things that you only see in the press is you see the negative aspect. You only see there's thousands of people crossing the border. There's thousands of immigrants and they're coming from Mexico. The majority are from Central America. But they only see that aspect. And, and, and it, it sometimes brings up a negative connotation when there's so many things. We share a lot of businesses in Mexico, las maquiladoras, and many people go and work there. We have people from Matamoros who have permits and they come and they work here. So yes, I would say that. What we need to do is, of course, we need secure borders. What does that mean, secure borders? Safety. Our government can do more to try to make something a little bit more um, workable so that we perhaps have we have agencies down in Mexico, down in Latin America, Central America particularly, that can expedite who's coming. Why people get frustrated, Mr. Taylor, is because it invariably takes more than 10 years to apply. So when you ask someone who's in a lot of need and desperate, put your name in the line, in the queue, and wait 10 years, plus come up with a lot of money for your application. Some patients, not patients, well, me as a doctor, everybody's patient, <laughs> but some people get, get a little bit frustrated and they want to take the, the quicker way out, not the safest way out. We all have seen all these deaths, drownings, and violence at the border because they feel they're forced to. We unfortunately, uh, some of us, not all of us, I'm not one of those, that feel, send them back. I mean, like, cut dry, send them back. It's a very complicated, that's all I'm going to say, because this is no time for us to be handling as to how it would be approached. But it's a very complicated issue, but certainly, yes, when elected, and I know that I'm going to be elected because I'm going to work for the people, I will be one of the first to say, we've got to find a solution for this because everything has a solution. And so we have to make things better. So when you thought, um, obviously now the district, because it's been redrawn and, and Congressman Philemon Vela has announced his retirement, so it's a brand new open seat. Um, everyone starts with this, this opportunity. Um, there's no incumbent. Was there one particular issue that made you think, I've got to run for this seat, this is the time for me to, to put myself forward, to tell the voters what I can do for this district? Was there one issue or is a, a range of things made you think, I've got to go for this? Uh, thank you. Thank you for bringing up the fact that uh, Mr. Vela will not be running. And you're correct. We do not have an incumbent. So we are not re-electing anybody. The person that gets elected is a first time for 34. 
first time. We're not electing anybody who was here before um, and is running again. That, that I'm glad you brought that up. There are several issues. I, as a doctor, know better than anybody in the sense of being a doctor, that healthcare is so important. Uh, working here for 10 years, I saw so many people whose lives were impacted adversely because they waited too long. Señora, ¿por qué se esperó tanto? Means, why did you wait so long to come and see me with a breast tumor, which has already spread to the liver and the lungs, and that means it's not curable? Doctora, no tengo seguro. Doctor, I don't have insurance. And that is by far very common. 30 to 40% of residents here do not have insurance. Now, the impression is that the reason people don't have insurance is because they don't want to. They don't want to spend the money. It has nothing to do with that. For those people, including colleagues of mine, who are under the impression that you can, you can get cheap insurance, inexpensive insurance through Obama, which is the Affordable Care Act, well, when I brought this point to them, they did not even know that. There's only a small little window of who qualifies. If you make less than $13,000, you do not qualify for subsidized. If you make more than maybe low tw tw 20s, like 23, 24,000, you don't qualify. Subsequently, you have to pay the average insurance, which may be hundreds of dollars. Well, when you're making $8 an hour, a bit better than minimum wage, you can't afford that. So therefore you don't buy insurance. And when I'm in Congress, one of the things that I will do is get back to the people who did the, who, who drew up the initiatives and the legislation to say $13,000 is the cutoff. Well, that's fine and dandy if you're in New York or in Chicago, but if you're in the Valley and you're getting paid six, seven dollars an hour, you are a maid, you are a housekeeper, you are a waitress, landscaper, and you make ten thousand dollars, you don't qualify. So you, it keeps you out of insurance, Mr. Taylor. And why do I say that's one of the main ones? What's more important to you? If it's not your life, right, your health. Now you can have money and you can have other things, beauty, and you can have children. My point is health is key. We all want health. And as a doctor, I know how we are going to approach. I know what has to be, I, I know how to expend Medicaid, how to get insurance covered for others. The, the mistake that people think is when I've said affordable, accessible health insurance for all, the first thing someone will ask me is, how are you going to pay for it? Their impression is that we're telling them we're going to cover everybody, sort of like a socialized medicine. And that's not exactly what I mean. What I mean is that if we do it the right way, and it's accessible because it's affordable, people will pay their own insurance. For example, if you qualify for a, a plan with the Affordable Care Act, 
your premium might be $27 a month. That is affordable. $800 a month, which is what I paid for my son, is not affordable. So that is what I'm leading to when we say affordable, accessible health care for all. Now, that was just one of the reasons that I saw. The other thing that is very uh, concerning is education. Now, we all know that we live in the area that has the most poverty. Cameron County, call it the valley. Regardless of what statistic you look at, we have at least 30% of the population is poverty. You well know that in the last few months, our, um, our index um, has gone up, meaning cost of living has gone up tremendously, more than 30, 40 years. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that it's now, if you go to the grocery store, you'll see that meat's $14 a pound. But guess what? Mr. Gonzalez's job is still going to pay him $7.25 an hour. Subsequently, our area will become a lot more, not poor is not the word, but have more poverty. And poverty also is brought on by the fact that our education level. I started doing research, and I knew it, but I started doing research to see how many students graduate from high school, how many students graduate from the universities. And I was very, very, very saddened, not embarrassed, saddened. The UTRGV campuses, whether it's Brownsville or Edinburgh, etc., 30% is the graduation rate. That means that of the students that get registered, 30% graduate in four to six years. Now they include up to six years, Mr. Taylor. It's not only just four years. Now they give you an extra two years. So 30%, and then I looked at Texas A&M in Kingsville, and that was 28%. Now, in comparison, Texas A&M in College Station has a graduation rate of 80%. Now, mind you, they're sister universities, right? Or, or brother-sister, right? Texas A&M. What's the difference? What would, you, what, what would you think is the difference between one and the other? I would think that Texas A&M in Kingsville has a lot of students that are more local to the area, to the valley. Students from West Lake O'Donnell or Brownsville or Harlingen versus College Station has perhaps more national students because it's very well known and students from Dallas and from Houston. And so we need to prepare our students and I plan to, I know how to. It took me 27 years to complete all of my degrees and all of my training. We have to start at the bottom. You can't say, well, we're going to start getting the students prepared when they're in high school. No. You start when they're in kinder or first grade. 
and we can do it. I have no doubt that I have the tools, the leadership, and the motivation. If we get our students better educated, what do you think is going to happen to our economic? It's going to happen. It's going to go up. And they won't have the... Also what mamacitas and papacitos and la abuelita are going to love is that our students, when they become an architect or a lawyer, they don't have to move to to San Antonio. They don't have to move out of town. They can stay here. We need to keep this knowledge that we have here. But we find out that everybody we sort of educate leaves the valley and moves to Houston because they find better jobs in Houston. So that, that being said, all the issues about health and education, jobs, we've got to get better jobs for the area. And I know how to do it. We can do it. You just heard part one of the Meet the Candidate podcast featuring Dr. Laura Cisneros, who is running for the Open Congressional District 34 seat in the Democratic Party primary. This is Lee Perez reporting with the Rio Grande Guardian International News Service.